Well, we're back in the book of Judges, or still in the book of Judges, I should say. Um, and we're working our way through. And um, you want to hit that button, Matt? Last week we left poor Jotham uh, on the mountainside, and he's preaching and, uh, to the people of Shechem. Again, Jotham is the, the last remaining son of Gideon, and uh, he's declaring a, a curse upon the land. Now, I want you to keep in mind here that it's not Jotham that is speaking. It's God speaking through him. And the words that he is declaring are the words of God because God is going to deal with his people and God is going to deal with his enemies. And what he has to say to these people is the plan and the method by which God is going to carry out um, these dealings. And so it's nothing that is uh, personally from uh, him. Uh, he's a spokesman for God in, in these manners. And God can deal with his people and deal with his enemies in a number of different ways. We've seen in the past in the book of Judges that sometimes God raises up um, uh, enemies to come in and to take them away in slavery and, um, and then God turns and, and judges those people that capture uh, them and, and, and he deals with them and their sins but this time God has chosen not to bring an enemy in God has chosen to deal with his people and his, and his enemies in a different way and so let's uh, turn back to Judges chapter 9 and verse 7. Chapter 9 and verse 7. And I left you last week reading this parable by Jotham. And um, so I want to start the lesson off by rereading it, starting in verse 7 through 15. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and raised his voice and called out. And he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he starts his parable. Once the trees went to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I give up my fatness with which God and mankind are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You, come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I give up my sweetness and my good fruit? and go to wave over the trees. Then the tree said to the vine, You, come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I give up my new wine, with cheers, which cheers God and mankind, and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the bramble, you, come, reign over us. 
And the bramble said to the trees, If you really are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may the fire come out of the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now I tasked you with a homework assignment last week. Uh, we said a parable is a way of teaching a lesson. Uh, Jesus used the parables all the time in his teaching. And um, so I asked you to kind of contemplate this and uh, ask you today, uh, what kind of lessons do you suppose God is trying to use here with this parable that uh, he's given Jotham to speak? Any thoughts on lessons you might learn from this parable? Well, it looks clear that a penalty is the bramble in the parable. Yeah. I think that's pretty clear that uh, Jotham's referring to a bimelech is the bramble. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And that's, a, it's a, that's an important key to, to uh, catch on a little bit later as we, we discuss a little bit more depth. The bramble's way down here. And the trees, of course, are up here. And uh, because of that lowly state, it makes it difficult to, for them to wave over the trees. But we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Good. Now we're scraping the barrel. <laughs> What do you suppose the trees might uh, represent? People. Whose people? God's people. Sure. The <coughs> the trees are kind of parallel. You know, paralleling here. Um, the trees are wanting uh, a king, and so are God's people wanting a king. But. God's true people are very productive people. Um, they are producing. They are uh, serving God and they're serving man, as we saw here in the parable. He says, why should I give up these things? Because I'm serving God and I'm serving man in order to wave over the trees. Okay. Well, those are all good things, and I, and I think you hit on a lot of uh, the details that are important here. Um, I'm going to go over some things at this point, and um, the ideas here are not original with me. I gleaned a, a lot of ideas from different sources, uh, particularly uh, from Jim Jordan's commentary on Judges. Um, and uh, since you hit on a lot of things that he hit on, uh, I think we're kind of in agreement uh, as to where this is going. So like I said, the tree's desire to have a king parallels the Israelites' desire for a king. But the tree said, we don't need a king. No. Uh, we have a king. Our king is our creator. And the people don't need a king either. Their king has been emphasized in the past, in the book of Judges, their king is God the Father, their creator. Neither one of those, the trees or the people, really need a bureaucratic king 
to rule over them when they have the God who created and sustains all of life to rule over them. The three trees we see um, each has work to do. Each of the three trees in the parable produce something, um, produce it uh, in a free market situation. Each gets joy from their work. None of the three trees are as interested in giving up the joys of work and the privilege of waving over others or ruling over others. Actually, that waving over the trees is kind of a sarcastic remark. Um, kind of putting down those people who do get enjoyment out of lording over other people, out of exercising power and control over other people. These three trees are associated with Israel throughout Scripture. They represent the godly men and women, as um, Rachel said, uh, who is fulfilling his or her tasks under God. As we have seen in the past, and even in our cultures around the world today, a godly society is made up of hardworking people who are fulfilling the cultural mandate from Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 28, to go out and subdue uh, the earth and uh, multiply it. Because the majority of people are engaged in productive work, Money expands, and life is good for most of the people. The olive tree produces oil. In the culture of, of the day, oil was used for cooking, and oil was used in the lamps. Uh, oil was also used for anointing men to office, uh, both um, in, the, in the church, in the temple, and as well, later on, we see that uh, the kings were anointed with oil as well. The vine produces uh, pleasure uh, in the hearts of man. It produces wine. And it also is uh, uh, something that honors God when it's poured out in a drink offering, uh, bringing pleasure to God as well uh, when it's done in this manner. The fig produces a sweet fruit that is edible for all the people. Um, it takes pleasure and certain proper pride and, and joy in fulfilling its appointed um, task that God has given it. So each sees itself as serving God and sees itself as serving man. But he puts God first, and then man. So in this way, we can see that these trees are unlike the sinful, corrupt uh, man. And they are certainly uh, different than Abimelech. The bramble does not produce good things. The bramble is a thorny plant and thus is an emblem of the curse of the ground from Genesis 3.18. The bramble is not a productive member of the economy. The bramble grows along the ground 
and the demand that all other trees take shelter in its shade is really kind of ridiculous. Like I said, it's way down here in the olive trees and the vines and the, um, uh, those fig trees are much above them. So how could they get below the bramble, take shade in its shelter? If it is requiring that to happen, where those trees take shade in its shelter, it means it's reducing everything to the lowest common denominator. In order to outshine the vine, in order to outshine the fig and the olive, the bramble must reduce them to a position much lower than himself. And this will result, of course, in their becoming unproductive. Since they dare not outshine the bramble, and the bramble produces nothing at all. So here uh, we see that the bramble is not uh, geared toward productive work. Rather, it is focused towards authoritarian rule. He represents the ungodly man who builds up a society based on taking what other people have labored for and taking what they have produced and claiming it to himself. Now this society, this, this authoritarian rule, can take a couple of different forms. Uh, it is a socialistic society. Uh, here uh, in a socialistic society, it's based on massive confiscation of wealth and the redistribution of that wealth to people and <clears throat> taking away their hard-earned savings and, and their capital. Or the society uh, could be an imperialistic society uh, based on the conquest in, of weaker people and confiscating their means of production. Or it could be a slave society based on forced labor of other people. The Bramble Society is indeed the Society of the Cursed. And I mentioned slave society here because slavery is, is taking a, a gigantic leap forward once again. Um, we see slavery in China. Uh, we see slavery in the Far East. Uh, we see slavery again in parts of Africa. So again, it's rearing its ugly head. Because of the sinful nature, the bramble is a man of wrath. If things don't go his way, he intends to consume those who obstruct and get in his way and who choose to uh, destroy his plans, he will deal with them. And we see that in, in uh, what the bramble says here about brush fires. I think of uh, Brother Tim here dealing with brush fires. Spreading along the dried runners of the bramble, where sometimes these uh, fires were a threat to the trees. And in Jotham's parable, um, he builds on that fact. The bramble is actually um, uh, threatening some of the mightiest trees of all on the earth, the cedars of Lebanon. So Abimelech is saying, if you get my way, I'm going to deal with you. And it won't be pleasant. 
So I guess I could sum up the point of the parable is that good men do not desire to lord over others. Good men are happy being productive for God and for their fellow men. They realize that the road is greatest uh, in the way of the servant. That's the best way to travel, not as the bramble. Just the way Jesus taught in Mark 10, 42 through 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are... On the next page. Those who regard as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So basically, the only kind of people who desire to uh, political authority for its own sake are the bramble, the unproductive people. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. If you look at Washington, how many people have made their entire life as a politician and have never really had the job serving other people or serving God? They are in a process of, of, of waving over other people. Christians are oriented towards serving God and man both. And they work in the marketplace to be productive. Their satisfaction comes through this productivity. They believe that the solution to modern social problems is faith in God in the work of Jesus Christ, in the souls and hearts of men, and hard, productive work. So as a result of that belief, as a result of that understanding, early on in our country's history, we had something known as the Puritan work ethic. We had the Puritan faith in God and the hard, diligent, productive work of the men and women of God. Unfortunately, most modern men today look to the state or to the bramble for answers. So that kind of sums up the parable. Any other thoughts or ideas after contemplating that? Okay. Let's drop down to verse 16. And Jotham continues on here. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well in, with Jerubal and his house, and if you have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone. 
and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milon. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. Well, we see here that Jotham reminds the people of Abimelech, uh, reminds the people of Shechem that Gideon had fought for them and strive to protect them and to judge fairly over them. And he also reminded them that they slaughtered Gideon's 70 sons. Not everyone in Shechem may have heard about this, so he repeats it up here as he uh, speaks from the mountainside. So he tells them, if it was a good thing to do, they should be happy. God will vindicate their deed if it was good. This speech is similar to, if you remember, uh, Joas's speech uh, in defending Gideon when he tore down the uh, Baal altar. Uh, Joas said, if it was a bad thing, then let Baal deal with it. Let Baal kill the person who did this. So, <clears throat> unlike the powerless Baal, though, the Lord God of Israel will prove completely able to wreak vengeance upon his enemies. And since their deeds were clearly evil, that's what they can expect. Fire will come from the bramble, Abimelech, and devour his kingdom. And fire will come from the uh, people of Shechem, and it will devour Abimelech. They are not productive trees either. They're bramble as well. So we see here God's plan is that evil against evil will devour one each other. The wrath of the two, Abimelech and the Shechem, will mutually destroy one another. It reminds me of the children's poem. Anybody ever read the uh, Gingham Dog and the Calico Cat? It just came to mind. <clears throat> Here you got uh, a dog and a cat. We know that they're not too friendly with one another. And so the dog is growling and the cat is hissing and the cat is clawing and, and the dog is biting. And these two go at it all night long. And in the morning, no one can find them because they devoured each other. The gingham dog and the calico cat. And that's what God is telling what's going to happen here. This is how I'm going to deal with my people and this is how I'm going to deal with my enemies. We see here that evil is self-destructive. Each man wants to play God and each man seeks to uh, mute, murder those who 
thwart his plans. Each wants to have his own wrath appeased by sacrificing the troublemaker. Each wants to correct the problem of the situation, and the answer to that problem is always the destruction of the other person. It kind of reminds me of the modern day, uh, if you've been following what's going on in Russia. You've got <coughs> Putin, who was former head of the KGB, the secret police, very uh, evil man. And then you got the other guy who was the head of the Wagner Project, very evil mercenary group of men. And the two of them clash, and um, all of a sudden there's an airplane crash. And one of them, <laughs> the head of the Wagner group, is dead. wonder how that happened. Okay, man. Okay, we've already done the parable. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> Eventually, they destroy each other. And that's the point made in Zechariah chapter 1, 18 through 21. If you want to turn to Zechariah. Verse 18. Yeah. <clears throat> then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, so that no one lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to frighten them, to throw them down, the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. The four horns mentioned here, well, first of all, we, what we have here is a, is a vision, a prophecy, and sometimes prophecies have immediate effect on, on the situation um, that the prophet is dealing with. And sometimes it also has applications for the future. So the prophecies can have an immediate situation, a resolution, and it can have a message for generations yet to come. And so we'll see, I believe, uh, that situation here in Zechariah. Uh, the four horns represent the bramble powers of the world. Uh, the bramble horns acquire wealth not by work, but again, by taking what they want through any force they have or through taxation. I don't know how your Bibles interpreted it, but uh, it, could have been, uh, it could have been carpenters, it could have been smiths or craftsmen. Uh, they represent God people. They just quietly go about their business of laboring for God and working to produce good things, being thrifty and helping their neighbor. 
and so on. So one would think that uh, such hard-working people will always be a prey to the tyrants of this world. But scripture says here that the craftsmen will overcome the horns. A civilization based on hard work and capital accumulation will eventually overcome a civilization that is based on theft and violence. And this is due in part to the fact that God will give power to his own people. A little further down in Zechariah 4, verse 6, it says, Not by might, not by power, but by, but by spirit says the Lord. And the fact that evil civilizations are, are self-destructive by nature. The destruction of evil cultures uh, can be seen in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. So turn over to Zechariah 14. We're looking at verses 12 through 15. Again, I think uh, the, the prophecy uh, can have an immediate effect on, on people uh, of that day, and I think it also can uh, have principles laid down for us uh, in the future. Verse 12, it says, Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all people, they have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot uh, in their mouth. And it will come about on that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one, uh, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And just like this plague, there will be a plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. I think we see here how evil civilization, God will use this plan to destroy evil civilizations uh, in four different ways. And verse 12, it says, they rot away due to their own inner corruption. Evil societies and cultures are rotting from within. I think you can take a look at our own culture. It's beginning to rot from within. And that is one way uh, it can be destroyed. They are destroyed by mutual hate and strife. And that's basically what we're seeing here in Judges 9. God has used hate and strife uh, to destroy uh, this particular uh, evil uh, civilization, this culture. We see a lot of hate and strife within our own culture. Probably unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. 
Another way that they can be destroyed is that they'll be conquered um, by the kingdom of God. In um, verse 14, it talks about Judah going forth and all these riches coming unto them. God's word goes forth. It can be used by God to conquer evil civilizations and cultures. We see that in the Roman Empire where Nero was persecuting the Christians at the beginning and by the end of the Roman Empire, Constantine has declared Christianity the religion of the empire. So God's word can overcome these evil cultures and civilizations. Verse 14. And they are destroyed by the misuse of their resources in verse 15. See the list there of all the Examples that of riches, the camels and the donkeys. And sometimes evil cultures will misuse or waste or consume their own resources. I think we can look at Venezuela as a good example. One of the richest country in South America at one time. And then the misuse of their oil through evil culture there. We have an, a large part of their population going through dumps dumpsters today to try to eat hand to mouth. So they went from the richest to one of the poorest because they abused their resources. So for these reasons, the wicked cannot continue to rule the world indefinitely. God is in control and will use these and other means to bring judgment to them. So we're down to verse 22. Um, I want to hit it again, Matt. We see here a summation of Abimelech. We know that he was the uh, son of Gideon. Uh, that uh, after Gideon died, the people turned against God. They worshipped the Baals. We know that he was uh, become king over Shechem hired the worthless men to go and kill um, to go and kill his brothers. Verse 22 Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and then God sent an evil spirit uh, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech in order that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Abimelech. Well, it seems like evil men will be at each other's throats soon enough, but we also see here that God, in his graciousness to deliver his own people, kind of accelerates that drift towards mutual destruction and hate and strife. The Bramble men began to war against each other after a mere three years. And we're reminded that God's pitting these evil men against each other 
is just a continuation of a policy that he started back in Judges 7 when he had the Midianites fighting against each other and killing one another. The reason for God's direct action is given in these verses. He, the great avenger of blood, he's the avenging of the deaths of the 70 sons of Jerubbabel. It should not surprise us that God is able to send an evil spirit, as mentioned in these verses. As we have studied in previous lessons, when we were studying about angels and um, the world of the unseen, um, we know that God is in control of, of, of all angels, including evil ones. And they are all at God's command. God normally does not permit Satan to have his way, but God does send evil spirits when it suits his purposes. And his purpose here is to deal with his enemy and to uh, redeem his people. We've also seen this in Job 1 and 2, and we've seen this in 1 Kings 22, 18-23, when God sends a deceiving spirit to King Ahab. Therefore, God can raise up the Assyrians to do his work of judgment, and they are happy to do so, but then God will judge them for their evil hearts and their actions. It's also the same with fallen angels. Um, it's wrong to think that Satan has some independent realm from which he makes war on God's a lot of people today believe if there is a God and if there is Satan, that they're both equal. They're co-equal. And that's, that's heretical thinking. They're not co-equal. Satan and his angels are in submission to God's will. Satan is a fallen member of God's court. And his doom is already assured. But he is still under God's command. And Satan can only act against God's people with God's permission. Now, Satan delights in doing evil, and God thus uses him to punish his people on occasion. But Satan has no realm of independent action of his own. So when Satan opposes God's people, it is with his permission, and all of, <coughs> and all of it, it will be for our good. So Shechem de decided to get rid of Abimelech. They set an ambush for him, but he found out about it. And at the same time, they became highway robbers, showing that they too were evil people. They were the bramble people, if you will. And this highway robbery uh, became an embarrassment uh, to the rule of Abimelech. An embarrassment to him. Verse 26. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and crossed over into Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field and gathered out their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. 
Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel, the Baal fighter? And is Zubo not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? And who will give this people into my hand? Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. For we know that Abimelech was a half-breed, and his religion was a half-breed religion. If you recall, it was um, used the Baal idolatry uh, segment, as well as parts of the covenant faith, and it was meshed together as a half-breed religion. And it was called Baal Bereth. The man who now appears on the scene is a full-blooded Canaanite. And he advocates for returning to a wholehearted Baalism. And he rejects everything dealing with Israel's influence. So Gael means <coughs> loathsome in Hebrew. It may have meant something else in the original Canaanite. Um, but at any rate, uh, he's a mean man. He's up to no good. He's loathsome. Gad's brothers, in quotes here, came with him. Now this could include relatives. This could just include um, a a tribe of followers that he's gathered around him. Kind of like a motorcycle gang, you might say. And he was already a big man among this group. And now here he is coming into Shechem. And he's wanting to uh, deliver them from this king Abimelech. So they performed some kind of a harvest festival and it held in the uh, temple of Baal Bereth and this is the same place where the Shechemites um, uh, made covenant with Abimelech and now they're rejecting him at the same place and making covenant with loathsome Gael at the same place. And if you notice that Gael uses the very same argument against Abimelech that he used against the 70 brothers. He notes that Abimelech is the son of Gideon, the Baal fighter. So he encourages Shechem to cast out all remnants of the Israelite culture and return wholly to the original Canaanite culture of the city. And we'll kind of end our segments here. Any thoughts dealing with material we covered today? We'll see what happens to Gael and to Shechem and even Abimelech next week. Any thoughts? No? Okay. Brother Tim, would you close us in a word of prayer, please?